Welcome to Asphalt Chasers, the podcast where two motorcycle enthusiasts share their tales of adventure on the open road. Join John and Dave as they discuss the exciting rides they've conquered, the interesting people they've met, and the places they hope to explore in the future. From scenic routes through breathtaking landscapes to exhilarating rides through bustling cities, your hosts will take you on a journey like no other. They will share tips and tricks for planning the ultimate motorcycle trip and talk about the gear and equipment they swear by. And at the end of each episode, they'll raise a glass and take a shot of their favorite spirit in celebration of a ride well-ridden. So strap on your helmet and join John and Dave on the ride with Asphalt Chasers. Good evening and welcome to episode two of Asphalt Chasers. I'm your host, John, and tonight, again, I am joined by my buddy Dave in the north. How you doing, Dave? Good. How are you? Oh, doing good. Nice week down here this week. How about up your way? Uh, it was nice, I guess, but it's turning cold again. Oh, boy. And, and tonight we have a special guest. This guy puts me to shame in miles. If you remember from all pipes, everybody called me Million Mile Miracle. Well, this guy puts me to shame. And uh, hey, Chris, good evening and welcome to the show. Good evening. good evening, John. How you doing? Doing well. Yourself? Doing just fine. Thank you. Yeah, man. It's, it's been a good time. And we uh, met Chris. He joined the MPC last year with uh, Motorcycle Men. And Started talking with him, and he's a long-distance rider, done how many numerous iron butts. So tonight we're going to focus on and talk to him about iron butt rally stuff. So, um, so Chris, I know, let's see, the uh, 2023 rally is about ready to start here in, what, two, three weeks? Yeah, it starts, uh, now you're putting me in the spot, I didn't look at the calendar. Uh, uh, June 19th? Night, 18th, 19th, give it, give it a day. It's a Monday. Yeah. Uh, I think it's the nineteenth, uh, June nineteenth. You guys are leaving out of. If I remember talking with you. You're leaving out of Philadelphia, or not Philadelphia, Pittsburgh this year. Yes, we're leaving fi- Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh, cool. And this is what your what is it? Your third time doing it. This will be number five. Wow! Wow! My goodness. So you know, if people don't follow the Iron Butt Rally, is eleven days of riding, and I always thought it was eleven days of thousand miles every day. Is what it was, and talking with Chris, it's it's more than that, isn't it? Yes, it's a lot lot different than just riding for a, a thousand miles a day. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, um, it's all about points, correct? Is how they do it. Yeah. Or, so basically, it's it's a comp, it's a it's a scavenger hunt. Okay. It's a competition. You know, you win based on points. It's not number of miles ridden. It's, it's, you know, or, or hours or time, it's how many points you score. So basically the way, the way we earn points is we are given at the, the start of the rally, they will give us a book of say 300, 400 locations. It varies every year. Um, each location has a point value, a time restriction, you know, Daylight only, nighttime only, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. if it's a business, whatever, whatever it is, um, and something to do. And usually it's taking a picture of your flag and whatever object they call out in the bonus. Um, sometimes your bike might need to be in it. Sometimes you might need to be in it. Sometimes you and your bike need to be in it. Um, sometimes you might need to buy something. Okay. Yeah, or... 
you know, if it's at a casino, you might need to get a poker chip and take a picture of something. But the bulk of them are taking pictures. Um, And then each one of these has a point value. And the point values are roughly based on how difficult it is to achieve the bonus. So, for example, if we start in Pittsburgh and our our checkpoint, which is three days later, is in the Midwest, um, and there's a bonus location, say, in Key West, you know, if you look at a map, you realize that Key West isn't really on a direct path to go out to, say, Texas. Um, obviously, you're not going direct. You're going quite a bit far south on roads that have lots of traffic and slow. That's going to be a really big bonus, lots of points. If you've got something that's in Wheeling, West Virginia, which is right on I-70, um, it's not going to be worth very many. Um, and then basically you, you take all that information, you build a route to get to the most number of points and get you to the next checkpoint or the finish on time. Uh, and then you ride it. And at the end of the, the 11 days, whoever has the most points wins. Cool. Dave, what you got? Any questions for Chris? What do you got? Yeah. So like, uh, how many checkpoints is there generally? Is there just one or. So the last, so this is number five for me. For all five, there was a start and a finish, which were at the same location. And then there were two checkpoints during the rally. Usually, like, say, three days in, six days in, and then the last leg would be longer. Uh, We did have one year, which was, and I'm drawing a blank what year it was. I guess it was 2019, where under certain conditions, you could skip the last checkpoint. Now, it was worth a lot of points, like 18,000, which is a lot on, on the rally, typically. But, you know, you know, conceivably, if you were skipping it, it's because you were getting a lot more points than that. But to skip it, you either had to get a photo bonus, bonus which was on the Pacific Coast Highway in California. And then, is it the Montauk Lighthouse? It's like, or basically a lighthouse at the far end of like Quebec. You know, so you're crossing the widest part of North America. Um, and if you did those two, you could skip, you know, and scored them and actually got credit for them, you could skip the, the uh, checkpoint. The other was if you went above the, I think it was the 60th parallel or somewhere up northern Alaska, like central northern Alaska, mm. then you could skip the checkpoint. Mm. But it, again, it, you really had you know you were really under the gun if you were skipping the checkpoint. Yeah, it's the West Kobe Lighthouse, I think is how it's pronounced. It's in over there in the eastern mouth of Maine. Is that the one you're talking about? The eastern mouth lighthouse? Uh, I uh, or what been in It might be. It, yeah, I think that might be it. Yeah. It's, it's the easternmost uh, point in the United States. Yeah, and I, I obviously didn't go for that one or else I would know exactly <laughs> what it was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Dave and I are planning on hitting that here in a couple of weeks on our trip to Maine. Oh, cool. Yep. So, so um, go ahead, Dave. So, um, so you have to make the checkpoints and then to finish. When you're at the checkpoints, is that is there like downtime then? So, just to to actually to back up. So for the actual routing, um, we get the, we get the bonus locations the night before after a banquet. So we have from say. 8 p.m. once the bank the meeting's over until 8 a.m. the next day to plan our route and sleep. So use your time wisely. For the second, for the two checkpoints, 
Yeah, we get in. We usually have to be in by 8 p.m. Between 8 and 10 p.m., there's penalty points accrue at like 100 points a minute or something like that. And then if we're in after 10 p.m., you know, you're done. You're disqualified. Um, and then we, we have a riders meeting at 4 a.m. the next morning. So you're free to do whatever you want. And then intervening time, highly suggested that you sleep. Um, and then we have the, the, the riders meeting. And at the meeting, they will give us, usually what happens is the point values for the bonuses change throughout the rally. So something that was worth 100 points in leg one might be worth 500 points in leg two, and it might be 10,000 points in leg three. Um, it all depends on where the rally master wants you to go and how difficult it is to get you there, to get there from where you're starting and where you have to end up. Um, and then once once the meeting's done, you're free to go, but you obviously don't know where you're going if you haven't built a route. So then as you build the route, once you're comfortable with it, you go. But you know, the more time you spend routing, the less time you have to ride. So, but you know, so typically there's going to be you know just shy of six hours. You know, worst case scenario is if you got in right before the checkpoint closed at five of ten p.m. Uh, I think. Um, you know, you might have, say, five hours to sleep, um, oh. assuming you went right to bed after scoring. Um, if you're like me in the last two rallies, well, one of them I went and I had to go to a friend's house and do a wheel swap, so I had a fresh tire in the back of it. The next checkpoint, I had to reattach the exhaust to my bike because of the exhaust on this trip. So I ended up working on my bike till midnight, getting up at 4 a.m. for a meeting, realizing I had no business routing, let alone riding, so I went back to sleep for a couple hours, so, which destroyed my score. Right, and I think what you finished last year, last rally, what was it, 30-something you finished? I want to say 28. Okay. 20, it was my best finish ever, right. but we also had 20 less riders that were able to get into the rally because there's people that's, from outside the U.S. that ride as well, and they could not get into the rally. That's right, that's right. So, there was COVID limitations yeah. of your out-of-country yeah. riders. So, yeah, so this so, year is probably going to be pretty big, huh? Yeah, so my guess is all of the ones that were supposed to be in it in 2021 are riding this year. Because uh, typically, typically, if you sign up and accept the spot and pay your monies for the rally, if you drop out, you don't get the money back. But at the same time, obviously, it wasn't their fault that the country was closed. Right. Either their home country was closed or U.S. was closed, so they couldn't get it. But there's quite a few riders from... A lot of Australians, a lot of Canadians. Um, there's a couple from the UK, a couple from Germany. In the past, we've had one or two from Portugal. Um, that's probably most of the most of where they come from. Right, and and I guess the question that we didn't cover is what bike are you planning on riding? I know you have multiple bikes in your stable, so which one are you plan on taking this year? I'm planning on riding the same 2006 Sportster that I've ridden for the last four. Right. And an interesting thing is how many miles are in that on on that little Harley? Three hundred and twenty-seven thousand miles. My goodness! Original motor? No. Okay. So in twenty seventeen, I was actually prepping the bike for the IBR in this. In I think it was April. And what I was what I typically would do is every every other IBR, I would replace the primary chain and sprocket. Just to make you know, because just to make sure they're fresh and 
the tight spots are out and all that. And when I pulled the the, the sprockets off, I saw I had a bad bearing in the main shaft of the transmission. Mm. And since a Sportster engine is all one piece, engine and transmission, um, basically that means you got to split the cases. Now, I did at the time have access to a machine shop. I could have probably made a puller that I could have gotten in there and pulled that bearing out. My concern was I had 207,000 miles on the bike at the time, which was uncharted territory for a Sportster. And if one was bad, what did the rest look like? Right. And where did the bearing go that used to be there? Because it wasn't in the primary case. So that meant it went inside. And, you know, to me, you know, parts floating around in your transmission is a bad thing because that could cause your transmission to lock up. And if it's at the wrong time, it could have some pretty devastating results if you're in a turn and your rear wheel locked up. Right. So I, I decided to pull the engine, split the cases, took about a month, replaced every bearing in the transmission, got it back together. This was all working because I work full time. This was all working for, you know, say three hours a night, every night after work. Uh, I had a friend of mine coming down to help me. And I got it running uh, Mother's Day of 2017. I thought it sounded a bit loud, but sportsters always sound loud in the top end. And I justified it as well. It's, I haven't heard the bike run for a while, and it's in my garage and this and that. So I decided to take it for a test ride. I made it about three hours in the engine seas. Mm. Excuse me, three miles in the engine seas. So pulled the plugs out, went to turn the engine over. And for the one plug, you know, I just stuck a screwdriver in it to, to see if there's any movement in the piston. And the piston wasn't moving for one of the cylinders, which I took as a bad sign. So I ended up uh, tearing it apart, you know, tearing it, you know, the heads and uh, cylinders off and realized that yeah, the engine was gone. And then ended up uh, buying a used engine, which had at the time 17,000 miles on it. Got that all, all installed. And I actually rolled the bike out the Friday before, uh, thir Thursday before Memorial Day weekend. Rode it out to West Virginia. I can't remember what, what the name of it, Martinsburg, I guess it was, or somewhere, um, to participate in a rally, uh, a 24-hour rally. Is that? A is practice for the IBR, and B is the test run for the motorcycle. And, you know, being that I'm on an engine that I had never heard before, every single hiccup, cough, sputter, noise, creak, you, you name it, um, I was like, what's that? Yeah. You know, but it's been, that engine is still on the bike. That engine itself now has 100 and doing some quick math, 135,000 miles or so on it. Um, it was running great. Yeah, I know going down the road, and every time I smell something weird, like brakes or tires or something else, I always start looking around the bike, seeing what what is it? My, is it me? <laughs> is it me? What what's what's going yeah. on? I mean, it's and it's new and everything, but it's just you never know. Yep, check the mirrors for smoke behind you. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. right. So yeah, that's that's cool. And then I know you also have a BMW uh, as well. That's a secondary bike, right? Or yes, yeah, so I bought. Um... Surprisingly, because I never thought I'd own a BMW <laughs> motorcycle. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll blame it on a friend of mine who was a sales guy up at Hermes BMW in, in Port Clinton. Um, Which is a good dealership. They, oh, it is a very good deal. I, I, I know people that have uh, driven up from Virginia, Florida, 
just to buy a bike up there, run it around for a weekend to get a thousand miles on it, got the first service done and rode it home. Um, quite a few guys actually, but um, yeah, I, I stopped in there. I actually took the Pan America for a ride uh, a couple years ago, back before you know when Harley had the demo fleet up in. Um, uh, help me out. It was up near Bloomsburg, Dave. There's a off-road vehicle area up in that area somewhere. Uh, I can't remember the name of up it. Up near Tower City, that one? Possibly. It's in a Bloomsburg area within like five, ten miles of it. Oh, I, I'm guessing. But, you know, so I drove up there, did a tent, did a demo ride on one. I actually really liked the Panamax. And on the way home, I was passing by Hermie, so I figured I'd stop in and see my buddy Bob and poke in the ribs, make sure he's still breathing. And, um, yeah, we were talking about it and I told him about what it was like riding the Pan America. It's now compared to a, you know, a BMW GS. And I said, I don't know. I've never ridden one before. And he's like, why not? Because I got short legs. I need the, I need the, the factory lowered model. Do you happen to have one? He's like, as a matter of fact, I do. And I'm like, shit. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I, yeah, cause I, I'm all of about five, nine with 30 inch inseam. So. Yeah, you know, on the on the full standard height bike, I can sit there with the bike up on its side stand and swing both feet with my toes extended and not hit the ground. So uh, riding a a standard height one is just not enough. Um, so I took it for a ride, and I thought interesting bike. I didn't like it. I didn't dislike it. It was just a bike. Right. Yeah. You know, so uh, on the way home, I was thinking about it. And I'm like, well, what are my options? I can either, if I, if I want a Pan America, so that was August, I want to say, of 20, I guess it'll be 2019. Um, and I'm thinking of it. I'm like, you know, I could either have this bike. I could either wait until February, which is when they were talking about the Pan Americas being out. Um, or I could have this GS right now. Right. And to buy a brand new Pan America, you know, I need the one with the that lowers itself, the um adaptive ride height, which means you're buying the premium bike, then spending another thousand, fifteen hundred bucks for that. I definitely want the side cases and top cases, so I need, you know, another three thousand for that. Definitely would want the extended warranty on it. So I'm like, I'm looking at twenty five grand out the door. Or I can buy this BMW that's got 30 at the time I had 34,000 miles on it. I could buy this bike for 10 grand less and have it in two weeks. Right. So I called Bob up. I'm like, Hey Bob, I want to come up and do another test ride. We'll do a longer one this time. And ended up putting money down on it. And I had to sell quickly sell a bike to get the down payment. And you know, brought him a 20, it's a 2015 or 16, 2015 BMW GSA. Right. Had now it has 36,000 miles on it, um, which I like the bike. It's, it's nice. It's, I still attach to my Harleys, which I've got three of, uh, but I do like the GS. And, you know, I plan on, you know, that will become my, my rally slash travel bike uh, when I retire my sports day, So Yeah. Is this, is the sports are going to retire after this rally or are you going to keep running it? I'll keep running it, but whether, you know, I mean, there is, some, it is pretty cool when you, you know, when I pull up in front of a bunch of people and they're looking at this, you know, ratty looking, you know, blue sportster with, you know, it hasn't been washed in ages except for the last rainstorm I went through and scraped up windshield and 
on all that, you know, and with a 60-ion auxiliary fuel tank on the back of it. And they look at it, and they, they start asking, I said, yeah, the bike's got 320-whatever-thousand miles on it. They're like, no way. Well, yeah, look. And I just kicked on the odometer, like, holy crap. Then I have to go through the whole engine rebuild story, because they say, is that the original engine? So I, I, I need to actually write that up and just, like, hand it to people, I guess. Right, yeah. Um, but, uh, so, yeah, it'll, it'll, it'll still be ridden for a while. Yeah. Um, I, I might, I've been toying with if there's a museum that wants it, either, you know, Maggie Valley down in North Carolina, because they've got Brett Donahue's Sportster that, you know, he rode that the third place in the 2009 or 11. I can't remember which IBR it was. Um, yeah, I know there's, I think it was 09. I, I know there's one I know that wheels through time. I know there's a, I don't think it's a Harley. I think it's a BMW actually sitting, or is there a Harley? I don't know. But I mean, it looks like the guy just rode right in there, right? Right from the rally, right into the shop. Well, that's actually the way Brett's Sportster is. I mean, it looks like, I mean, his, you know, one-piece air-stitch riding suits there and a bunch of other nice. stuff. And it looks like literally he just rode, I mean, he just rode it in a park. Um, there's also an old, like, 1960s, um, it's not electric glide, but the predecessor to electric dog ride or what. I can't remember exactly what it is, but um, they've got that there, which is another long, you know, multiple IBR finisher. So I've been toying with seeing if they would want it, or maybe, um, you know, I don't know if the Harley Museum would want it, but if they wanted it, you know, that would be my first choice. And then there's uh, Bill's Bike Barn up in uh, Bloomsburg, which is a cool museum. You know, at least that would be local. Right. Um, so I've been toying with that that way, because I'm obviously not going to get anything for a bike with 227,000 miles on it, but scratched up paint you know um right so and and I, I just couldn't bring myself to sell it but i would i would consider putting it someplace where i can at least go see it so cool and, and yeah and the interesting thing with chris and and here what is it about um april early april he was actually going to the uh long distance or the ibr banquet in jacksonville and he was going around about way and people talk about me being crazy he was going to go all the way out to California. To make it to Jacksonville, and unfortunately, some bad thing. Well, not well. Unfortunately, he had a little incident in Memphis. Am I correct? And, yeah. Uh, the back end kind of slid out and on the bike, and he he's okay. Bike's okay, and he made it through with all his gear. Had little pieces, but was really cool. I think with the community talking with him offline over since April is that how he posted it and how the community just jumped right in and helped you get home. I mean, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, the, 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 so obviously motorcycling is a pretty small community. And the long-distance riding community is, you know, and I'll say a tenth of that, just to put a number on it. Might even be less than that. Um, but we're all, you know, we're all pretty close in that. And if, if it's somebody that, if I don't know somebody, you know, there's a, there's a mutual friend that we both have that, you know, we know. So... It's 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 not different. There's there's not many. You know, it's it's not the six degrees of separation you saw from Kevin Bacon. It's it's usually one or two. Right. Um, but yeah, on on that accident. So that was so the the Ironbound Association has their banquet in Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, it it, you, it can coincide with Daytona Bike Week. Um, so it's always the Friday of Daytona Bike Week is the banquet. Um, most of us usually get in a couple of days earlier. There's rides and other events that happen. And I, you know, they always do what they'll call a ride-in certification. What's great about that 
So, John, I know you've done a couple of IBA certified rides. Yes. So what's, what's cool about a ride-in is that all I do is I email them, you know, I'm going, I'm leaving here, I'm coming to Jacksonville, I'm going through these five cities, this is the ride I plan on doing. Here's, here's a link to a satellite tracking website. Now, I'll, I'll, I'll see you there. And when I show, and then when I show up, I just basically give them my receipt. And at the, you know, that evening, you know, and then Thursday or Friday evening, you know, they hand you your certificate. So that's cool. It, it's just easy, really easy to get. So I've been doing work, excuse me, ride-ins. And I usually, usually do something that's a little crazy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's just what, why do a saddle sore when you do a saddle sore 6K? Saddle 6,000 miles in six days. Right. So, and I also look at it, you know, it's just like skiing. You don't point your skis directly downhill and go downhill, right? So why can, why would you expect to be pointing your, your bike straight to Florida and going due south? You got a zigzag. So I, I basically planned my ride to go out to California. I was actually going to be on, try to go for the Recycle Garage and the Motorcycle and Misfits podcast yep. on, on Sunday there. And leave there and then be in Jacksonville in three days. Um, and everything was going great. You know, I was all fat, dumb, and happy at 9 p.m. or roughly 9 p.m. on a, I don't remember what day, what day of the week. I guess it was a Saturday or Sunday. Um, and then all of a sudden, the back of the bike decided it wanted to pass me. So after it flipped back the other way, I kind of realized I wasn't going to get out of it. Then the bike threw me off. And I'm laying on my left side, sliding at 60 miles an hour, looking at my bike sliding. Then watched my bike flip over on the other side. This what destroyed the other side of the bike, and then I started rolling, so I never saw it. So um, that was in the middle of I forty in uh, West West Memphis, Arkansas. And I was literally just starting to plan for um, you know, where I was going to stop for the night. You know, I was going to I was trying to make Little Rock. Um, but anyway, yeah, I uh, you know shook everything off with some help because the, the cars behind me were, were kind enough to stop and help me instead of running me over. Um, and they basically helped me get my bike up, got it onto the shoulder. After a few minutes of trying to figure out what to do, I say, let me see if the bike will start. And it started. And even though I could see a hotel three tenths, four tenths of a mile away, it was six miles to ride it because I was on an interstate and I had to get three miles to the next exit and then go back to it. Um, so I got into the hotel and I have, you know, my employer, we have an office, a large office in Nashville. I've got a couple of friends that work out of that office. So I texted one of them. I knew he rode. I knew he had a trailer and I knew he had a garage. And I said, hey, Phil, you know, you up for a phone call? And he came right back. So I gave him a call and said, hey, just dump my bike in the middle of I-40. I'm okay, but I got to figure out how to get home. And what I was thinking at the time was I can get back to Nashville. He could store my bike. And then I price, a one-way plane ticket from Nashville to Philly was two or three hundred dollars, which I think that's not too bad for a one-way ticket leaving tomorrow. Um, so that was my plan. Um, you know, he was basically then I asked, oh, by the way, how far is it from Nashville to here? He's like about four hours. I'm like, oh, so he's like, so I'll be there around noon. I'm like, okay, fine. You know, and then uh, I literally half an hour later, I got a text from a friend of mine asking if I was okay and. He said, you know, me and my husband are on vacation starting tomorrow. And if I needed a ride, they'd come get me. Now, my friends, Lisa and Steven, live in Annapolis, Maryland. So they basically put their vacation on hold for a day or so. 
uh, hooked up the trailer. Uh, on Sunday, they drove out to me, picked me up and my bike up, took me back to Annapolis. My wife came down, met me, you know, because, you know, I live outside of Philly. Um, they, you know, she came down and met us. We went out to dinner and then we just basically hooked their trail up to my, my wife, my Jeep and we took the, the bike home. So there I was Sunday night. I was home and, uh, or Monday night I was home. And, um, just thought about riding down because I had, you know, I have, I have five bikes. Um, I was down to four. Um, but I thought about it and I decided, you know, all my cold weather riding gears got holes in it now because I wore a hole in my left sleeve of my jacket. I wore a hole in the left butt cheek in my, my riding pants. And I figured it was supposed to rain for the ride home. I'm like, you know what? I think I'll drive. I think I'll drive. So I borrowed the Weiss Challenger and drove down to Jacksonville. So. But yeah, it's, uh, but the number I probably had four other unsolicited phone calls for, yeah. do you need me to come get you and take you home? Right. And yeah, two of them were, well, my buddy Phil, plus the ones that Steve and Lisa and, you know, my other friends, you know, Mike, Mike and Tina, you know, I know them very well. Um, but I had one guy that I only know from a Facebook group that we belong to. Right. Uh, we have never met before. And he's like, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm off for the week. I'm heading down to Jacksonville. If you want to come get you, I'll take you to Jacksonville. So or I'll take you home or wherever you want to go. And I'm like, wow. <laughs> yeah. So it's just, just, the, just, the community is just unbelievable. Yep. All right, Dave, what you got next for him? Well, since it's an ongoing thing here, rain gear. <laughs> What's what? that? Do you use it? No. No? Okay. I don't use rain gear. Then let me explain. What I wear is very expensive riding gear, which is Gore-Tex. So I wear, you. I'd say 90% or 100% of my long distance traveling, I am wearing what's called a Climb, K-I-M, uh, Badlands Pro jacket, which is a very heavy Gore-Tex. Uh, you know, um, uh, what's the synthetic material, you know, Gore-Tex jacket. So it's, it, it is waterproof. Uh, it's got armor, armor padding in it that is reactive, meaning that it's soft and pliable. But if you smack it hard on the ground or when, on an object, it, it turns hard. Um, I wear the jacket all the time. Rallies and things where I'm riding through the night, I wear, you know, the matching pants to go with it. Um, and they're Gore-Tex as well. So I'm wearing Gore-Tex riding gear whenever I'm out on the road. Um, and so I don't need to stop and put rain gear on if, uh, if it starts raining. Because what I found before I was wearing that, it would start raining. And I'm thinking about myself, you know, it's such a pain to pull over, open up the saddlebag, dig to the bottom of it to dig the rain gear out because it's not going to be on the top because it's stuff I stuffed it on top of it. I put it on, ride for an hour. And then take it off. So I just, and so what I found is I wouldn't put the reindeer on. I'd ride through the rain with my jeans and a t shirt and just get soaked and then think, well, that was stupid, but it's too late now. I'm already soaked. So I'm not going to put it on. So, which is great with dedicated riding gear that's, that's waterproof. I don't need to worry about it. Go ahead, John. I know you got a question. What? No, no I was just, I just think about it. And I, I've came on. Um, you talk about Hermes and up there. I went up there um, 
was it last year? I think I went up there with Dave, and I actually walked out with a pair of climb boots. They sold yeah. me, and with the with the Bora things, I really like those. I've actually now have a climb injection uh, mesh jacket for the summertime, and uh, for the winter t- for um, my birthday, the wife got me the climb induction gloves, the short cloth summer gloves. So nice. I, I've kind of came around the. I've tried a lot of different gear, and I've really have enjoyed the climb stuff. It fits nice. Um, I guess I guess the only one big thing is it must be awful hot in the summertime with that all that Gore-Tex, huh? It, it can be. So, and there's a there's a couple of solutions for that. So, um, what the vast majority of the riders do that wear climb arrow stitches, the other top brand that most of the long distance wears, and you know this stuff is outrageously expensive. Um, but because of the miles that we ride, oh yeah, it's worth it. Oh yeah. Now, would I rec- would I recommend somebody who rides a thousand or two thousand miles a day to go out and drop two grand on ring on on? No, right. buy some of the the lesser expensive ones. They will they will protect you. Right. Um, just to the side before I get into staying staying cool, I have a very good friend of mine a couple weeks ago who was on his way home from Florida to. to Home to Annapolis from Florida is actually a parent of father of my friend Lisa. Uh, he hit something on the Beltway around uh, Richmond okay. at six a.m. Never saw it. Basically, ended up sliding down on the ground with his bike on top of his head. Mm. And you know, his his gear and his it was all torn up. Um, very limited road rash. His road rash was limited to basically. Fingers because his gloves came off on the flag. I guess his, his arms were behind him, and he did wear through his jacket in one spot. So he got he got some road rash on him. But basically, with climb, if you send him, you know, the police report and your gear, they replace it for free. Oh wow! I didn't know that. So yes. Wow. So, um, so any anyway, so that's another reason why we you know we spend the money for the good gear, and, and usually what happens we don't just go out and buy this expensive gear. We start with the cheaper brands, and we realize they only last a year or two. Right. Then we buy another one, and you know, for three, four hundred, and it lasts a year or two, and we get wet, you know, or it lasts a year or two, and gets wet, or, or gets wet. So then we have to after we spent like five years of spending a couple grand on an expensive gear, wait, bite the bullet, we buy the expensive gear, and we don't get wet anymore, and it lasts. So my my climb jacket that I just replaced. Uh, I got in 2016 mm. after my first Ironman rally. After because I destroyed the one I had before that by going down. Right um, now it was high vis yellow, which is now white from being out in the sun for <laughs> 300,000 miles. Right, and you know all those years, but you know I mean it still holds up, still works great. Um, but the way we stay cool is, and this works for the vast majority. I'll say 90 plus percent of the riders. As you know, we wear a base layer that is a, a wicking base layer. It, it wicks the sweat away from your body, so your skin stays dry. Right. Um, the brand that we all choose to ride is LD Comfort because Mario, the guy that owns the company, is one of us. He is a long distance rider, so we keep the money in the family. Um, so that will wick the, the, the. So that helps right away just by wicking that sweat away from your body. Um, if you start getting warm, what we will do is we will basically wet the sleeves down on 
the, the up because it's a long sleeve shirt and we use, you know, long, long tights, not shorts. Uh, we'll wet the sleeves down. And then you basically, it is counterintuitive, but you close all the zippers on your jacket, open up the cuffs as wide as they can go. And then you open up the zipper, main zipper, open, you know, that much. What that does is it forces all the air to go up your sleeves, past your wet sleeves, the wet, your wet base layer, and which evaporates the water, which cools, you know, creates cool air. And it flows up your sleeves into the body of your jacket and out right. the vent. And then you modulate it by opening and closing the zipper. That works for most people. For me, you know, I'm, I've got fat forearms that <laughs> well, the air doesn't get past my forearms. Yeah. My da- jacket. Da- Dave and I are in the same boat. So that's, that's so, correct. So don't worry. We're, we're in the same boat over here. You right. know. So that doesn't work for me. Once in a while, it'll work if the temperature and the, and the conditions are just right. And it, it, it feels like a blast of cool air on your body for, you know, a couple of hours, an hour or two. And then you just, Wet your sleeves down. Right. And, what, I, and I knew about the technology, and that's why I got yeah. the, the climb jacket. It's a mesh jacket, you know, textile. So it's got the vents in it. And I knew living down here in North Carolina, I've learned over the years that's th- the thing. And people ask me, and I remember last year um, in Sturgis, a guy asked me, how can you wear all that gear? Uh, how can you wear all that gear and do it? And I'm like, well, there's a science behind it because the sweat – the sun doesn't evaporate your sweat off of your skin, you know. The, the the jackets protect it, and then when the air comes across, it cools you off. The only part that I know that sucks is when you're sitting in traffic, and then you just start sweating with all the gear on, and then it's really bad because you're not getting anything. No yes, air. Yeah, that part does suck, and there's no way around that. Yeah. So, But now, what, what I actually do is when the temperature gets, you know, above the mid-90s, I just stop, and I buy an 8- or 10-pound bag of ice, and stuff it inside my jacket. Yeah. And what will happen is, yes, you get that initial shock to your system. And, like, you get, you know, like I said, it's hard to describe. It's kind of like jumping into the ocean, you know, jumping into a lake in, in, in November when you live up in the Northeast, you know, Pennsylvania, not North Carolina. <laughs> uh, and you all of a sudden get that shock to your system. It's like electric shock. So it's kind of the same thing. But once you get used to it, um, that keeps me cool. And then what will happen is that bag of ice will melt and it pretty much soaks you in cool water. And, you know, and, and I've been able to go. So I stuffed a bag of ice inside my jacket in Phoenix and um, it was 100, uh, 112 degrees out. Um, I have black controls on my bikes and I, and I wear fingers gloves. I could not touch the controls on my bike. I literally spent 15 minutes my hands covering the controls but not touching them other than what i needed to do to keep the bike straight or if i had to stop or shift um until they cooled off so i could touch them was how hot the sun was but i stuffed this bag of ice inside my jacket i rode for about an hour i ended up having to stop because with just the heat and all i was actually falling asleep from dehydration um and that eight pound bag of ice was now the size of a softball but I was soaked with cold water. I didn't have to. Use, I didn't have to get any more ice for the rest of the day. I was, I was actually comfortable for the rest of the day. Now, now um, the interesting thing. I heard the story. The other thing about the story is what happened later that night. What's that? Well, you told me if I remember correctly, you did that. The thing was last year in the Hoka Hay because you also done that. That you were, did that, and then you had to go up and you hit fifty degree weather. Oh yes, yes, yes. Actually, that was that was that same day. Yeah, I forgot about that. Yes, so. Actually, yeah, so that was in the 2021 Iron Butt Rally. Okay. So, so I have this problem 
I usually have my, my, my eyes are bigger than my appetite. So both with food, which is why the size I am and with my riding ambitions during rallies. So my last day for the last two IBRs was 1400 miles in 28 hours long. Mm. Um, that was my last day. And by day, I mean, in between sleeps. <laughs> so I left Amarillo, Texas at 3 a.m., rode north to uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico, down to Albuquerque, New Mexico, down to uh, Tucson, Arizona, then to, was it Tucson? No, no, not Tucson. Um, okay, Corral. Um, um. Oh, yeah. Um, Tombstone? Yes, Tombstone. Down to Tombstone. You know, there for some reason. Then, yeah, Tombstone, <laughs> Tucson, um, and then the Phoenix area. Um, and I scored my land. And, and actually, I wasn't, that, I wasn't uncomfortable until I was basically between uh, Phoenix and Tucson. And just sitting on a, a, a concrete interstate doing nothing to 10 miles an hour for about two hours uh, and just having that sun reflect off that concrete right into me, it cooked me. So I got into Tucson, got my last bonus for the rally. It was, say, 5 p.m. on, that would be Thursday. Uh, when I needed gas because I couldn't remember if there's any gas on the interstate that goes from Phoenix to Flagstaff, um, I want to say 17, but I, I, I kind of remember what the interstate is off the top of my head. So I couldn't remember if there was gas there. So I stopped and got gas, grabbed a bag of ice, stuffed it inside my jacket, and blasted off. And I'm fat, dumb, and happy because I'm now cool. I feel good. I'm riding, having being totally oblivious to what the time was. Um, I, I knew what it was, but I wasn't paying attention. I had to know what it was because I had to break the time down when I, when I scored the bonus. But I didn't really think about what time it was. So I'm, you know, if you're leaving the uh, uh, Phoenix area, you're almost at sea level. You know, maybe a little higher, but all intensive purposes are sea level. Right. Well, Flagstaff is what, like 8,000 feet? 7,000. I learned that a few years ago when uh, when I was going out there, and I didn't realize it was that high. Yes, that's why they get snow in Flagstaff. Um, but anyway, so I was riding and you're going through the mountains on, on the interstate headed north and the sun started going down. Uh, and as you go, and, and as a pilot, I knew these things, as you go up in altitude, you lose a couple of degrees per thousand feet. So between weather and that, I guess the temperature probably dropped a good 20 degrees. So here I am just now starting to get dark and I'm soaked in cold water and I'm shivering. So I had no chill and, and, and I, I needed to take a break, you know, because I've been on the road for since 3 a.m. in the morning. You know, and it's probably now, say, 8 p.m. Um, I needed to pull over and take a break. And, you know, I'm, and I'm shivering. So I ended up having to put my heated jacket liner on over top of my wet shirt underneath my wet riding jacket and plug in and hope I didn't get electrocuted uh, while he you know, but at least I was warm and I was, right. you know, warped over safety, you know, warped over the fear of electric electrocution. Um, but 
like I said, I, I survived and I ended up pulling into the, 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 the finish for that one was in um, Provo, Utah. So I literally rode through the night and pulled into the, the finish at like 8.30 a.m., you know, half an hour late. But, you know, still, still finished, just accrued a lot of, of penalty points. Mm. Um, but, yeah, the, just uh, – and, and, you know, I mean, it, it, it sounds risky, but, again, you know, the thing is, those of us that do that, you know, we know our limit. Right. So I know when to stop because I'm getting tired. So I will – I can sense when I need to stop and I will pull over and I'll take a 10 to 15 minute cat nap. And, you know, that will get me usually about an hour. Mm. And if I do a couple of those back to back, you know, I'll get my second win and I'll be fine. So I I ended up, like I said, I stopped once between uh, Phoenix and Flagstaff. I stopped once between Flagstaff and I'll say the Utah border, you know, two more later that night. Then I was fine until basically, you know, 6 a.m., you know, daylight, actually. Uh, I was fine. I just got on the I, I think that's 25 that goes up through Utah. Um, yeah, and then I ended up having to, you know, stop and take rest more frequently and pound in the caffeine. So that meant at every other exit, I had to stop and go to the bathroom. You know, then I ran out of exits. And then I was okay, you know, I, I need to make it three more exits so I, I can get to the end. But, um, you know, those of us that do this, you know, we, we know our bodies and we know when to stop. Yeah. Yep. All right, Dave, come on. You're awful quiet over there. Is, it, is there any other secrets? Like, I know as a truck driver, like sometimes when we get tired, like I'll take just plain old water and splash on my face. That'll give me a good 45 minutes to an hour sometimes. Is there any secrets like that? Yeah, we do that too, but, you know, keep in mind, we have to stop to do that. Yeah. So, you know, and the idea is to not stop if you don't have to, but I, I mean, when you're falling asleep, that's a, that's a, I have to stop. Right. But, um, you know, I mean, we, I've done that. Um, what I found is something spicy tends to wake you up as well. So I'll find something spicy to snack on. Um, another thing I discovered actually during that IBR was, pistachios so i have a problem when i snack you know, so when i'm starting to get tired if i, I snack if i snack i'll stay awake the problem is i can't just eat one piece of one m&m or one you know peanut it's you know fill the hand and stuff them in your mouth well in 10 minutes your supply is gone and then half an hour later you're falling asleep again uh pistachios because you've got if you've got to shell them um you can eat one at a time so it's, you know, pop one in the mouth, put the shell open in, in, inside my mouth, you know, play games by spitting the shell out in certain angles to see what happens with it. And I got a couple to hover right in front of my face for about, you know, 30 seconds before it hits the slipstream. You know, I'm entertaining myself and I'm keeping myself awake. Um, and the other thing is, you know, there's, in that rally, there was only 80, but there's 80 to 100 other riders out there. And there's riders that aren't not riding in the IBR that we know that, you know, we will talk to on the phone and, you know, through the night to stay awake. And, you know, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll have, you know, that's, that's the beauty of today's technology with, you know, having your know, hands-free calling um, right. and, and a headset is you can talk on the phone. You're not tying your hands up. And that's how we stay awake is we, by talking to other riders. 
Um, you know, as long as they got cell coverage. <laughs> right. And I, I know one of the rallies I've, I know that we talked in the past and one of the next iron butt rallies that I need to knock out is the 1524 kind of try to do that one. I know you said that's the hardest one, but I've gotten to the point where I was at like a thousand when I was going out to, uh, Texas and I was thinking I stopped and I was like, well, I'd like to, I felt pretty good, but I said, well, if I eat, I'm going to be done. And then I thought, well, if I had somebody else with me, I might be able to push on. But I haven't found anybody yet crazy enough to else to go with me yet. Yeah, so that's that's the, the bun burner gold. So I, yeah. I personally, for me, consider that one of the harder rides. I mean, I can, I to me, it's a lot easier to do six thousand miles in six days than it is to do fifteen hundred and twenty-four, um, because to do a thousand miles a day, if you're on highways. You can knock that out 14 hours if you're efficient. You know, right. So that gives you, you know, eight to 10 hours to sleep. Um, you know, so that's, that to me isn't, you know, isn't that difficult. When I was first starting, no, I couldn't do that because I was too inefficient at my stop. Yeah. That's, but I go, think that's my problem. I'm a little inefficient at stops a little bit. Yeah. No, I think the most, best I have done a thousand is 17 hours. Yeah. And that, that's a, that's a realistic pace, but still at 17 hours. That gives you seven hours. Yeah, that's my mouth. I was right. Seven hours to sleep. Right. You know, to do another one back to back. So now it's down to comfort on your motorcycle. And are you, is your motorcycle comfortable enough to allow you to do that? Yeah. For me, I mean, I, my, my limiting factor on how long I can ride my motorcycle is how long I can stay awake. Mm. I have zero discomfort on a sports store. People are blown away with, but my bike's set up for me. You know, right. I've, I've, I've customized it. It took me two years to get it there. But that's the way it is. That's why I'm not riding the BMW now. I'm rally, so I don't have it comfortable yet. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the, the thing with, you know, the BBG is, you know, it's, you know, so if you, if you divide the, the number of hours and the number of miles, you come up to roughly 60 some miles an hour. That's what you need to average. Yeah. So obviously you need to be on a road where well, you've I... got 70, 70 mile an hour speed limits or more. Right. And, you need to be really efficient on your fuel stop. Well, actually, so. I shouldn't say, I shouldn't say. I found somebody to do it. I just got to take a drive. And that's, I got to go to Texas. Well, there you go. And and meet up with my buddy, Chad. You, Chad that we know, and he'll be listening to this. He's already said it, that we go end up in Texas, and we can go ride around all of Texas and do the 1500, get the in the state 1,000 as well in, in, yep. in Texas. And you know the speed limits out there are ridiculous, so... Yep, you can knock them out as long as you get through the two or three big cities. You can knock it, be done with it. So, yeah, West Texas, you've got eighty mile an hour speed limits. You have eighty mile an hour speed limits on two lane state highways. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's bizarre. Oh yeah. yeah. All right, come on, Dave, stop drinking over there. <laughs> I think Dave's gonna fall asleep. I know. No, no, no. I'm very entertained here. Um, <laughs> I just I want to make a sure and make a point here that. His last day was 28 hours. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Everybody else's day ends at 24. <laughs> well, as I said, you know, <laughs> I measured my day on when I woke up and when I actually got into the end of the checkpoint, got scored, and then right, went right to, right to bed, you know, took a shower, got scored, went right to bed, slept for four hours. Um, I wanted to get up because there was a couple of riders that were coming in to just barely beat the clock, but I was dead to the world. Uh, that bed felt so good. Yeah. Uh, and that first beer, it, even though it was 8 a.m., that beer felt good because I hadn't gone to bed yet, so it's still nighttime. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, the, the bad part about your 15 minute nap, and you can talk, you can ask Dave about this one, is also in Gaysburg. I think the first year I was up there, I said, Yeah, I'm going to go take a nap. And three hours later, here, John comes back. And you're like, You want to take a nap? I'm like, Yeah. My nap. <laughs> if I, I can't take 15 minute naps, it's a couple hours, so I don't go down. So, so there's there's a science to it. Um, so basically, if you sleep too long, you've got to be down for three hours. So there, there's a, there's an article out there which I can send to you. Um, it was it's done by a medical doctor who was a long distance rider, talking about your sleep cycle. And basically, from what he you know what he broke it down to is, and everybody's sleep cycle is different, but. You don't want your body to get into what's called REM sleep. If it does, you're done. You got to sleep for an entire sleep cycle, which mm-hmm. is a couple hours. Um, but if you can do 10 to 15 minutes, you know, and wake up, you know, you can wake up and go. Um, if you wait too long, you, then you got to be done for the three hours or else you're going to be up and groggy. And we've all had those, like we fell asleep for a little bit and got up and groggy and you can't function. Right. That's what happens. So, yeah. All right, Dave. Come on, you've been taking notes over there. Uh, I, I I'm pretty much uh, I'm pretty much done here. I mean, I'm not going to be doing no 28 hour days anytime soon. I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we might have learned a secret about next year's ride. Don't you think some ice is going to be in the picture? You think? Oh yeah, there's definitely going to be some ice in yeah. my jacket. So what? One comment on mesh jacket. Okay. So mesh is good to a point, right? So where, where mesh becomes a problem is when you get into the mid-90s and above. And the reason is you're now in the range that the outside air is warmer than your body. Okay. So now basically what happens is with that hot air blowing on you nonstop, it's like a convection oven. That hot air is warming your body up. It's no longer cooling your body, okay. which can dehydrate you very you know, quickly. So the, the only advantage mesh has at that point is it usually blocks the sun, so you're not getting sunburn on top of everything else. But it's still letting that hot air hit your body, uh, which will basically heat your body up. So just be careful. You know, and obviously, with as humid it is down in North Carolina, oh, yeah. you're not going to get away with it a little longer. But you know, it's, that's why very few long-distance riders wear mesh. All right, so they wear all the textile or leather? Yeah, they well textile. Very few. I'm probably one of the few that wears leather, and that's only because my jacket has shr- my regular climb jacket has shrunk, so I can't get the layers under it I need. Uh-huh. So I wear my my Harley leather, which is a little bit bigger, and I can get the sweatshirt and the thermal shirt and the fleece. I.e., has it shrunk or has the um um the wife been cooking too good of food for you? Or I've been eating too much junk food. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's the other thing about that. What do you do? Do you, before you do all this writing, do you like prepare body wise and food wise or before? Like, do you, like, I know you're getting ready to do this. So, you, do you start changing your habits? So, some people do. Um, I don't. I, I look at that, you know, if, if I'm going to change my habits, you got to change the six months at a time to get into right. a new rhythm. Um, so I don't. You know, I, I usually try and minimize the caffeine, my caffeine intake anyway, so that when I do have caffeine, it affects me and it wakes me up. 
Okay. Um, but that's my normal life because I'm actually sensitive to caffeine. I shouldn't be drinking it. Right. Um, but I, I don't really change my diet. Now, what I do end up doing is when I'm on the Iron Butt Rally, I actually eat better then than I do not because I don't snack. I don't have time to snack. Okay. So my bike, so my Sportster, I have a six-gallon six auxiliary fuel tank, which gives me 10 and a half gallons. I can go about 400 miles on a tank of gas. Um, I usually stop around th- between 350 and four. Well, 350 to 400 miles is a lot of hours. Um, I only eat basically when I stop for gas. Right. So, and then I'll go into the restaurant, uh, the gas station, and usually end up in truck stops or something similar to a sheets or whatever. Yeah, yeah, that's um, yeah, that's usually what I do with a yeah. lot of riding because it's like a one stop right. all. You got 24 yeah. 24 hours a day. Food, gas, restaurant, restrooms, you know, gas, ready to go. Yep. And I'll, I'll, I'll grab a sandwich, um, which isn't the best for me because I am diabetic, but at the same time, I'm not eating anything else other than a sandwich every six hours. Right. Um, and I'll usually drop five to 10 pounds during the IBR, and my blood sugar is better than it ever is, you know, outside of that. Um, but that's basically what I eat. So, um, and I try and go for the, something more healthy. I mean, I'm not going for anything horrible. Um, but that's, you know, that's what I choose. I know others that they start hitting the gym, you know, a year beforehand. Because if you're in better physical shape, it helps. Well, I had that goal, but I don't know what happened to it. Um, and then they'll stop cutting out. They'll cut out, you know, whatever from their diet, whatever they think is good for them. But everybody's got their own thing that they do. Uh, and it's, it's, again, it's something different for everybody. Yeah. Oh, your goal is just like mine. It's just as far away as it was when we started. That's the problem. Yes. <laughs> well, so everything was going good. I actually had my bike all ready for the rally this year ahead of time. I didn't have to do anything for, to it other than maybe change the oil and swap, do a tire swap, you know, before the rally until I decided to dump it on I-40 in March. So I literally, you know, as you've probably seen on Facebook, I literally am just now getting the bike back together. I was hoping to do a test ride tonight, but I didn't because I had some conference call thing to do at 8 p.m. tonight. I know, um, right? I really appreciate this. Yeah. You know, it's really cool. And Yeah. yeah. So I know Dave's going on vacation. You you got the Iron Butt Rally. Dave and I here in a couple of weeks are meeting up in Pennsylvania. go ride around the New England states finally after I'm knocking out my three-year plan of trying to get to maine i'm finally going to be able to do that so mm-hmm. should be a good time up there so yeah yeah so dave what else you got anything else anything else you want oh to i wondered i wondered what's what do you think is harder is the actual writing harder or is the planning harder uh, that's a hard question to answer and, and I, i'm going to say it varies based upon the rider and what the goals are. So is your goal to just be a finisher or is your goal to try and do as best as you can, maybe ultimately be in the top 10 or higher? Um, it's not, so the Iron Butt Rally, and at, at, at the risk of alienating some of my fellow riders, I maintain the Iron Butt Rally is not that difficult just to finish. With a, the caveat that you're never more than a flat tire, a breakdown, running out of gas, traffic jams, 
accidents, storms, whatever, uh, of DNFing at any, any point in time, from the point you leave that start to the point you pull into the finish. Anything can happen over, you know, instantly outside of your control that ends your ride. Um, but if you're trying to push yourself the harder, I, I, I'm, I'm going to basically take it for granted that most people that are seriously pushing themselves that hard to be in the space, the top 10 or top 20, are already competent long-distance riders where the distance doesn't matter. It's, it's, it's the ability to see that route and build that route to get you those number of points. And then the ability to actually ride that route. So that means you've got to be efficient on your stops. You've got to be efficient on your routing. So you've got them in the right order. Um, you're not making mistakes, you know, because you can have the perfect route and, and think you've won, even though you don't know what anybody else has done. But when you go to that scoring table and they say, well, you took this picture from the wrong side of the bridge. It was supposed to be the east side, not the west side. Um, sorry, that, that, that bonus has declined. Oh, because that bonus is declined, you lose credit. Like so, we'll have what they call a string of bonuses. You know, you lose the entire string, which means you lose the thousand points for the bonus, but the the fifteen thousand bonus points for the string. And now you're down to this number, and I'm sorry to say you're not a finisher of the IBR. That happened to a very good friend of mine. That's probably a better rallyer than I am. Um, so there's there's simple mistakes you can make. Now I should ask a question: that, Is do you have to do like I know from checkpoint one to checkpoint two? Can you just go to checkpoint two and not do any other stuff, or is there stuff you have to do? So there is a minimum point value to, to finish. Okay. So so they will tell you on the first leg, in order to be a finisher, you should aim for this many points. Okay. And if you hit that. And then they'll tell you the same thing for the second and third leg. You hit those, then you should be comfortable. Uh, now they give you, and by give, it's, it's, that's the wrong word. There are opportunities to score points without visiting a bonus on each leg. Okay. So, for example, there's a, there's a rest bonus on each leg where you get points for sleeping. So you can get up to eight hours of sleep, you know, X number of points per hour. Or actually, number of points per minute, actually. Um, so. If you take the full rest bonus, you document it with a receipt at the start and the end. Okay, there's eight hours times 60 minutes times X points a minute. There's that many points. It's a call-in bonus, typically. Not always, but typically. Uh, or actually, there has been always, but there's no guarantees going to continue. Uh, where if you make a phone call and you call in between these hours and give them specific information, you know, your name, your rider number, where you are, where your last bonus was, where your next bonus is. Uh, you get points for that. Okay. Um, and then there might be a couple of other things in there. Um, we all have a satellite tracker. You know, most of us use a spot tracker or we're using Garmin inReach. Um, as long as your tracker is functioning, they can track you throughout the delay. You get points for that. So you get a number of points that, yeah, you can lose them really easily, but you don't have to actually go anywhere to get them. Okay. Um, and then at the very end, you get points for having your flag at the, you know, at the finish because some people lose their flag, and then you basically substitute your face for a flag. Mm. Uh, try and take a picture of your face with something in the background. You know, when you're looking at a regular camera, 
it's not real fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, and I remember but, yeah. talking to you. One of the things, Dave, to share with you when I was met with Chris here over the weekend was um, one of the bonuses he had to walk three miles to get something. Oh, yes. So, as I said, the value of the bonus is based upon the difficulty of attaining that bonus. So, in the 2019 Ironbot Rally, our checkpoint was in Kennesaw, Washington. So, I'm building my route. Now, we only had a couple of days. We only had like three days, you know, for that, uh, for the second leg. And I'm looking at it, and I'm like, wow, there's these two really big bonuses, like 5,000 points, which is a lot for that rally. You know, not too far away in British Columbia. So I'm building my leg around those. I added a few others that were actually to the south of me that were decent points. So I was basically leaving Kennesaw, dropping south into Oregon, and basically going up I-5 in the British Columbia. Well, I'm talking to my friend, Mike, who his first time at rally, and he was he basically just wanted to finish, but he was still, he wasn't just getting the minimum number of points. I mean, he was still pushing himself. Right. And I mentioned that I'm going there because I didn't want to go anywhere near California. To me, California is traffic is bad. And I, and actually that year, there was a really bad earthquake in California during the Iron Butt Rally, which actually caused two of my friends to crash. Mm. Um, so I didn't want to go anywhere near California, but there was like Alice's Restaurant and a few other notable places. And I said, you know what? I'm not going near California. But I don't want to take that chance. So I'm going to play it safe and go up to British Columbia. First time I've ever entered Canada during the Ironbound Rally. Okay. And I'm talking to my friend Mike as I'm heading north. And he's like, where are you going? I'm like, oh, I'm going north. I'm going up into Canada. He's like, really? I looked at that, but I was concerned about the ferries. And I'm thinking to myself, ferries? What the hell is he talking about? So unbeknownst to me, because I've never been to British Columbia before, up in British Columbia, they don't build bridges. They put ferries in. So there's ferries all over the place. And I sat there and I thought about this. And I'm like, wow, I need to basically relook at my route before I get too far in that I'm backed myself into a corner. And I realized that I had built into my route, well, three or four ferry crossings. Mm. And the... Whether the three or four depended on once I got my second bonus, did I backtrack and recross re the two ferries I had come across, or do I go the opposite direction and take the like eight hour, eight plus hour long ferry, ferry you know ride down into Vancouver? Um, it was like eight hours from you know it was it was really long, and I'm thinking to myself, well, no, I'm not doing that, and. There's no way I'm going to, I've got to drop this one 5,000 point bonus because on top of there being a, an extra ferry, two extra ferry rides in there, um, it's got, it's got like 40 miles of unpaved road. Mm. And I'm like, unpaved to me just doesn't go well. It's one of these why I bought the GS and so that I can learn unpaved road, get something and ride unpaved roads. Uh, so yeah, that was, that was a, a, a surprise. It was like ferries. But again, you know, but the, the one that I got to, um, the identify was Skook, S-K-O-O-K, you know, not the same as Skookal County, Dave, that you probably know about in some of your Um But basically, you had to park your bike and walk, I think it was four kilometers, to a sign 
at a river talking about whatever native fish that were there. I think they were probably salmon. Um, and I'd take a picture of the sign and walk back. I hope they had something there to identify the fish. <laughs> uh, well, like you said, it was just it was a sign, you know. So you basically had a typical, you know, like the I'll say they're like fiberglass. You know, they're like you know, two foot by three foot. You know, on poles. You know, that's it was one of those that you just had to take a picture of that sign. Oh, you okay. Know? You know, so but that's what we had to do, and it said flat. This was not flat. It was up and down. You know, I was exhausted. Now, not that I'm in any great shape. You know, I guess round is a shape, but um, I was flat out exhausted when I got there. And, of course, I didn't have a way to lock up my jacket or my GPS unit. So I'm wearing my jacket. I've got my GPSs and my camera and my flag stuffed in the pockets of my jacket so I didn't lose them. Um, so I'm wearing this big riding jacket that looks like to everybody else like I'm wearing a full-blown winter coat. So and of course sweat's like dripping off my face, um, and yeah, I, I made that hike. I took the picture, and walked back. You know, as compared to the the winner of that Iron Butt Rally, Wendy Crockett, who basically spent the two years before that, she, she lives out in uh, South Dakota, or at the time she did, basically had her you know four year old daughter strapped to her back, and she's running up and down mountains. So I think she jogged it and probably did it in ten minutes, where it took me an hour. <laughs> Um, that was a case for you yeah, being in better shape would have helped. Yeah. But I had that one, and then there was another one that the bonus basically said, park your bike in the south end of the parking lot, walk up the stairs to the top, and basically I was taking a picture of a historical mount marker for uh, Mount St. Helens, the volcano that blew up in the 80s. Well, what it didn't tell you was that walking up the stairs was about a 500-foot ascent up the side of a mountain and the stairs were basically four by sixes cut in about three foot between them so that you had exactly one one and one half step between this step and the next one so having any kind of regular gait as you're climbing them was impossible and i was in literally 10 steps and stopping for a rest all the way up. And on the way down, because of the irregular gait, my knees were about ready to collapse. I had to walk on the hillside and just come down the hillside so I could have a regular gait uh, just to get back. You know, and I, I've got a picture. I don't know if I showed it to you, John. No, but, I didn't. Uh, yeah, it's, when I got to three quarters of the way up to the top, I looked back down and my motorcycle oh, yeah. was like a little speck. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You did, you did show me it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's just a, a little speck. Yeah. Um, and then the third one was a, uh, we had to walk inside a cave to take a picture of a, I forget what they call it. It was basically, it was a lava ball when this cave was formed, however, millions of years ago. Um, well, if you've ever been inside a cave, they're a bit dark. And we had to walk like three quarters of a mile into this cave and there were absolutely no light. So, and he, you know, even though they said, bring a flashlight, your cell phone won't be enough. Um, well, I didn't kind of listen. So I'm walking with the flashlight on my cell phone, which lights up about five feet in front of me. And I'm crawling through this cave. Totally missed the boat. The, the, this, this, lo this rock that I was just taking take a picture of was, was embedded in the ceiling. Well, I totally missed it. And I realized I was on my hands and knees crawling through this cave, and it was getting narrower to the point where 
I was hitting my head on the top of it and both shoulders were hitting the sides. And I'm on, like I said, I'm on my hands and knees. I had this revelation that I might've passed it. So I turned around and walked back for about five minutes and found it. So mm. yeah, it's just, again, we will do anything for points. <laughs> right. I hear you. Yeah. All right, Dave, anything else or we should let Chris go so he can get rested up and work on that bike. Yeah, I think we've, we've used up Chris enough. I mean, I, I think he's, I think we understand that, you know, his days are 28 hours. Yeah. He really, he's not a fan of fairies. No. <laughs> well, the, and, no. And, and caves are not something he's looking forward to. Put <laughs> the caveat that if I'm not under on a clock, I don't mind these things. <laughs> but when you, when you're on a clock and it's, you can hear that clock ticking in the back of your mind and you know that every minute you spend climbing up the side of this mountain, crawling through this cave, hiking down this trail, you know, tripping over roots and stones and trees and stuff. Every minute you continue to walk is one minute less sleep. <laughs> and that's what you get going through the back of your mind. Because, you know, at the end of the day, the rally, you know, just because you took longer to do something doesn't mean that the end of the rally is pushed back. It's still a hard finish. Right. So, you know, the only way to make up for lost time is to sleep less or to change your route. Yeah, the, the interesting thing, thing about you with that ferry, that eight-hour ferry, was get on the ferry and take a nap for eight hours and be all good. Yes. You could have got your that sleep. That does not count for your rest bonus. Oh, well, shoot. Oh, oh yes. Believe me, because they 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 take that into account. That, that, yeah. One of the rules is you, because you, the, the way to document your rest bonus is you need a start and end receipt in the same location. So it doesn't it's the same town. Okay. So they can be, you know, your odometer can change by like five miles. Okay. But yeah, and it can be, you know, you stop on the eastern side of the town to start your rest bonus and the western side to end it. Um, but they both better say the same town. And there's no 20 miles on your odometer. And you cannot score points while you're on your rest bonus. So if you start the clock on your rest bonus, do your call-in bonus, and then Stop the clock eight hours later. That rest bonus does not count because you scored points during that rest while you're supposed to be resting. Mm, okay. So you've got to again. You need to pay attention. It, it's you know read the the freaking manual. Stupid. You know that, that read the directions. Right. I hear you. All right. And I guess I'll have one last question. I throw this sure. out here. Here you go. New rider, rider person. What is one piece of gear you would say that they need to go get? That you highly recommend because you know we talk about the show and Breck years we recommend. What would you recommend? Like I know the climb, you got the LD Comfort shirt you're talking about. You know what? What would be something you'd say that somebody should get? Wow. Um, wow. I guess I stumped you. Or how about this? You want to well, save it, it for the next time? <laughs> well, the thing is, it depends on what the goals of that new rider is. So I'm assuming that a new rider isn't going for really long distance. Okay. So they probably don't need a GPS to start. Um, they probably don't need to get a really comfortable seat to start. You know, so I would say good gear. I would say spend the money on a decent helmet that's going to be comfortable. Because let's face it, if it's not comfortable, you're not going to wear it. Yep. And yep. I've, I've hit the ground twice 
my last one on my head it did not hit the ground, but the first one it did. There were scrap there were scrapes on the side of my helmet yep. and on my face shield. Uh, my friend Marty, who hit the ground outside of uh, of Richmond, oh, his helmet looks like it was it was run through an angle grinder. Um, another friend of mine, you know, it sucks to be a friend of mine at this point. Uh, he hit a deer this past Sunday. Um, his helmet again looks like somebody took an angle grinder to it. So I would say wear a helmet. And get one that's comfortable. You know, you don't have to spend six, eight hundred dollars or more on an Arai or a Shoei or whatever. Although they are comfortable if oh. you get one that fits right. Oh yeah. But don't don't buy the skid lid. Buy buy one and buy one that's comfortable. You know, wear it around the store for 15, 20 minutes or half an hour, whatever you need to do right. to make sure it's comfortable. I'd say that would be key because any year that you had that's not comfortable, you won't wear it. Right. And, and I would say, Dave, I think we talked about this real quick and going back to that, is last year when we went out west, uh, your buddy Lonnie's son, Logan, MPA, you know, no helmet, which is legal. And that's how he rides, right? And they ride that up there. And their choice, everybody's got their choice, not saying anything at all. But yep. he knew he was going to have to go west and he's going to have to wear a helmet. And the whole trip out, he wore his helmet. And he didn't complain one bit about the helmet at all. He yeah. said he, he got a helmet that fit, was comfortable, and said, you know, it's not that bad. So, Yeah, and, and, and that's it. Uh, again, I'm the same way. I don't judge anybody. You know, uh, the only thing I ask is when, when we're talking about riding gear is <clears throat> if you're going to choose not to wear any particular riding gear, make it an educated decision. Correct. Think about what the ramifications are of not wearing that gear and something happening. Yep. And if you're comfortable with that, fine. Mm -hmm. But you might want to make sure your family's comfortable with that. Because guess what? They might be the ones that have to take care of you if you're seriously injured. Yep. Um, w one of the very few deaths in the Ironbutt rally was a gentleman that took his helmet off. You know, and he hit a deer. Yep. Right. Highly accomplished rider. I mean... Probably, you know, I didn't. I don't know. I didn't know him, but when I understand, a very highly accomplished rider, you know, highly experienced, for some reason wasn't wearing his helmet and hit a deer, yeah. and he got airlifted out and unfortunately didn't make it. So, uh, and we all, anybody that's been riding for a number of years knows somebody that's been injured. So I'd say you know, make an educated decision. You know, take take a look at somebody with road rash and decide if that's something you want to go with. Because you know what, I've been down twice. I do twenty to forty thousand miles a year, so yes, I ride. You know, anybody that rides many miles, the likelihood of going down is higher just because it's miles ridden. Um, but you know, most people I know of have been down once or twice, and you know, it, it's you know, like, like I said, like a friend of mine said, you know, he makes the conscious choice not to wear riding pants sometimes because he he rationalizes saying, you know what, if my legs get all skinned up. I'm wearing, he's wearing a jacket and gloves and a helmet, so his his hands and arms will work, and his face is, will be okay, so he can still work because he's a programmer. So if that's what you need to do to rationalize it, go for it. Yep, yep. All right. Well, thank you, Chris, again for joining us. We'll get you on. Yep. Everybody can listen here when Alan but when the Iron Butt Rally gets done. We've already arranged it with Chris to come back on and yep. give us an update on how he did, and and he's got many other. Um, long distance riding challenges he does. So we'll get some more information about all that and stuff sharing. So, all right, cool. Dave, anything else you got? Want to shout in part and words? Nope. Other than, you know, the normal 
ha- have a shot. Have a shot. <laughs> enjoy. Have a chase. Everybody be safe and enjoy. Thanks. Thanks, guys. I love watching John after a shot. That's it for this episode of Asphalt Chasers. We hope you enjoyed the ride as much as we did. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes, please don't hesitate to reach out to us. You can find us on social media or visit our website for more information. Remember to always ride safely and responsibly and to enjoy every moment on the road. Until next time, keep chasing the asphalt and living life to the fullest.